Heavenly Father, you are great indeed. All we have to do, Lord, is look around us and see the majesty in all of your creation. If you look at the complexity of a tree, or the air that we breathe that fills our lungs, or the eyesight that you gave us, just the human body, no man could create that, Lord. We just know that it's through your provision and through your wonderful creativity that we even exist. We're even here today. We have air that fills our lungs and sights that fill our eyes. Lord, we just thank you for the gift of another day that we can be here to praise and worship you. Lord, we ask that you speak to Kirk today. Let his words be your words. Let us find inside of these words today your message specifically for us. Let us pull the threads out of this message so that we can hear what you would call us to do as you call us to receive and equip and impact and send your children around the block or around the planet or somewhere in between. Lord, let us hear specifically what you have in store for us and let us be obedient. We can hear that message and clearly accept it and enact on it through our words and our thoughts and our actions that we would do, not what we want to do, but what you would have us do, Lord. We just thank you again for the precious gift of your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we're gathered here today. And all God's people said, Amen. And you may be seated. Amen. Well, it's uh, it's a privilege for me to be here with you guys at Rock Point today, and it's also always a privilege to be with Randy. I got to sit up probably too late last night with uh, him and Holly and, and catch up. And uh, if you if you're one of those people that like to hear all the the stories on somebody, I have them on Randy. I have a full catalog of embarrassing stories for you. So if you'd like to get with me later, we could really have a great time going over some of the things. I met him when I guess he was a sophomore or junior in high school and was immediately impressed by uh, not only uh, his heart and his spirit, but the nerve he had to do some of the things that he was doing at that time. So uh, God has tremendously touched him and his family and just love him to death and so good to be with them. And this morning, we're going to be talking about parenting uh, and kind of kicking off an emphasis that y'all are going to be having here. Uh, this is something that's really precious to me. I, I really have always thought since becoming a father that, you know, obviously the greatest word in our English language is Jesus. But the second one has to be daddy. Just for a a man to be given the opportunity to share in God's name, father that he loans that out to us lowly human males and says that he wants us to be a father and to guide our children. I think that as a as a dad, it's always impacted me and been a very heavy mantle that as a father, I paint the picture of God to my children every day. And working with the boys I've worked with since 1984, uh, the, the confusion that is set deep within a child's heart when they have a father that is not um, walking in humility and correctness and in, in God's light, the damage is phenomenal. Uh, the boys we work with, if they had a father that has abandoned them, they picture God as a father in heaven who's quick to abandon them in their time of need. If it was a father that was, you know, a harsh and critical, they see God that way. If he was judgmental, then they fear God and fear their father's judgment. And strangely, 
through sometimes divorce and some of the the tragedy that comes along, fathers become gift givers and they just show up to take them and have fun with them. And those kids see God the Father as just a, a lackadaisical, fun-loving, happy God that just lavishes gifts. And and to be able to walk in that is heavy. I had a I still have an uh, an amazing dad. My dad's 82 years old and still incredibly active. He gets up before the sun rises to go work out. And I ask him one time, I say, what keeps you uh, working out and staying in good shape? He goes, well, I, I need to be in good shape to take care of old people. Uh, and I said, dude, have you looked in the mirror lately? He, you know, uh, you know, you've got some age on you here. He says he's so old he doesn't buy green bananas. Uh, there's no point. You may not be around for them. Uh, and it's. He's just an amazing dad. But growing up, I did not have the typical many times what we see today, church going parents that went home and lived a different life. My mom and dad served faithfully in the church, but they came home and they served God faithfully in the home. Uh, my dad was uh, was a godly man that, that loved to share his faith. My mother was just a servant before she went to be with the Lord. And I had a great model set there. And it's seemed that everything they brought together worked so well for my brother and sister. Didn't do too hot for me. Uh, I'm that classic middle child. Uh, I'd like to say that that's just a, you know, that's just a legend. There's nothing about that middle child. Yeah, well, I just walked right into it and proved it all over again. And then I have seven kids, which obviously you got three on one side, three on the other, and you got the middle kids. So I think having an even number of kids is wise. To stay away from that whole thing. But my middle one, uh, Micaiah, um, I, I was telling the earlier service, when he was five, we lost him in a mall at Christmas time in Houston. And my wife was panicking. She was praying and talking to the police officers and they were covering the exits. And I was sitting there thinking, dude, if somebody took him, they're going to bring him back and say, how much to owe you? <laughs> 20 bucks to take you. Now, I mean, I, he's just out of control. And, and I've never wanted to tame him. He was 11 when he got his first haircut. He was down to his belt. He's got a rough voice. And people would say, are you a boy or a girl? I'm a boy. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. You know what I mean? But, I mean, he had his long hair. And finally, I told him one day, I said, you want to get a haircut? He goes, yeah. And he got a mohawk. You know, so that's his haircut. You know, and he still, that's what he has now. You know, it's just, uh, and he's pretty wild. But in the mall, they were freaking out and covering the exits and, but then I hear it come over the radio that they'd found him about 20 stores down in Victoria's Secret. <laughs> and, you know, so now if he disappears, I'm like, honey, I got it. I'll, I'll go. Yeah. <clears throat> but, I mean, he's not a dumb kid. He knew right where to go. And uh, But he's been that way all his life. And, and I was that way. And my brother and sister took what my parents invested in them. And, and I don't even know if they've sinned yet. I mean, being a sibling to these two... My brother, this is not a joke. My parents got him counseling in his freshman year of high school when he made a B. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, he made a B and it cratered him. And I, sometime in middle school, kids, plug your ears, I figured out that all you had to do was pass, right? And a D is passing. <laughs> Why would you bust your tail for anything less? Anything more, just get the D. And my parents are like, son, there's a report card. I go, I'm passing. What do you want? You know, I'm, that's all I'm going to do. You know, and, and it was, that was the classic, underachieving, not caring, smart mouth. 
And so growing up, it was that kind of a life and ran away at 15, terrified my parents, out of control. And at 19, committed a crime that sent me running from my hometown. Brave young man, you know, runs. And I came to Houston, Texas. And there for the next four or five years, it was just polluting myself with with drugs. Meth was my drug of choice because I love the fact that I could work 10, 14 hours in the oil field. And I was a uh, pipe fitter and a commercial diver. And I love the fact that, man, I could work tremendous hours, go home, clean my apartment, go out to a nightclub and then go back to work. And I could do days and days and days of no sleep. But I hated everybody. And I was an angry, messed up adrenaline junkie. But I tell young guys now, it's okay to live like that unless you have one element. If you have a praying mother, give it up. God has a red phone on his desk hooked to praying moms. Break his leg, I'll take care of it. You know, I mean, God just, I mean, when you have a mother that prays, and my mother had a thing she called the misery prayer. (laughs) It works. Badly works. My mother would pray strategically against things in my life, and they would just, it would just be destroyed. I had a, you know, a car I loved. She prayed one day, God, take that car. I totaled it. The girl I'd been with for years, break up. My mother goes, I prayed for that. Yeah. I mean, and then one day I was mangled. I have some pins and screws in my left ankle and leg. I was mangled in this horrific accident. My mother shows up to the hospital, walks in, looks at my leg, turned the wrong way. And most moms would be going, oh, my poor. And my mother's like, God moves. Thanks, mother. Her bedside manner was legendary. But she cared. And this is when she told me one day, she says, I care more for your spiritual destination than your physical comfort. It impacted me. But at the age of 24, I surrendered to God in not an emotional deal, but a very logical thing. Logically, without tears and a lot of emotions, I said, you know what? I'm I'm 24 years old. I'm addicted I'm perverted, I'm hateful, I'm angry. I've been living with a girl for three years and I couldn't stand her. She couldn't stand me. It was just a to- Everything was toxic. And I realized that if God could take nothing and make all the intricacies of nature in six days, then prop his feet up. He could do a better job running my life than me. And it was just that simple. God, whatever's left, you can have it. I could not imagine ever turning 30 years old the way I lived. And God began to take and stitch things together. And nine months later, he called me to go back into an area that I had been active in the crime there, the drug culture. An area of Houston that's the center of homosexuality, uh, the prostitution, drugs, the Montrose area, which is infamous. And one night I'm approached by a boy and he's got on eye makeup. He's dressed all in black. He steps in front of me and blocks my way and says, what do you have there? And I handed him a little card with our phone number on it. And he said, "Uh, I don't want that. He dropped it on the ground, stepped on it. He said, see, I want you to understand something. He said, I'm a heroin addict, 17 years old. I'm HIV positive. He says, I have a venereal disease right now and I need help. So if you're going to take me and help me, I'll do whatever you say. But if you're going to hand me a piece of paper and walk away, you can go to hell. And in that moment, there was this vacuum of silence. And then I 
my ear heard my mouth say, I'll take you tonight. And I remember thinking, what did you, what did you just say? Did you say? But I, that, I took John in. His street name was Nellie John. Nellie's of street term means effeminate. And he was more effeminate than my wife. I mean, he was just out there, very animated. And only a few weeks after being in the home, he gave his life to the Lord after 10 days of heroin withdrawal, which was horrific to, to witness. Anytime I've seen it, it's horrible. But a few weeks later, he gave his life to the Lord. And the next day he came in, he goes, um, I want you to teach me something. I said, what's that? He goes, how to be a man. And I said, yeah, but it's going to be kind of, it's going to be kind of rude. It's going to be a little rough. And he said, well, what do you mean? And he was sitting there with his hands under his legs and he was doing his feet. Like, I go like that right there. You don't do that. Men don't do that. Stop that. And when he talked to me, he would do this. And I go, men don't, none of this, you know. And every mannerism I corrected, I never saw again. And within about six months, you'd have never known. And nine months later, sitting at the dining room table, I noticed a cough. We didn't have all the suppressive drugs we have now for HIV. And within a week, he was in the hospital, had pneumonia. And three weeks later, John went to be with Jesus. Eight of my first 12 boys died in my home. I didn't think there was a ministry going to be birthed because I couldn't keep them alive. But the fact is, as God was doing something, he was teaching me what needed to be done. And I took so many lessons from my earthly father in the way he had tried to raise me and began to put together this program that is Youth Reach today. 2,200 boys have found a home at Youth Reach programs. We are... Absolutely free. Most programs in America that offer our level of licensing, care, structure, staff uh, are between 3600 and 6200 a month. And we charge nothing. It's a gift to the community from the body of Christ. Full service, 26 acres in Houston, 81 acres in South Alabama. Um, unbelievable staff members who... I mean, they could be doing very well in the private sector, but, man, they live on next to nothing. I don't pay them worth a flip. I don't have any hirelings. But they they live there, they work there every day with these boys that are absolutely off-the-chain guys. But what we have found out right now, I've got this uh, kid. I've had him almost a year and a half, two years now, I guess. But when I first got him, little bitty fella, he had stolen... A police car, an unmarked car. He knew it was unmarked. He knew it was a cop car. He steals it. He's rolling down the road. And I had read the police report. So when I first got him, I said, so what did they do? And he goes, well, they started calling my name because they're through the radio. They're telling me to pull over. I said, what would you do? He goes, well, I kept going. Those cars are fast. I mean, he just burns it. Two counties before they caught him. And I mean, I've got one that set his school on fire. I've got one that, you know, he destroyed the principal's office when sent to the principal. I've got one that his father was one of the leading Asian gang members in Houston. and His father was deported. Then his mother was executed by a rival gang. We've got all. But the thing is, is when they come to Christ, they don't make good church members. Because we always tell them, we don't want to tame you. We just want to aim you. We just want to take that wild, rebellious nature. And point it in the right direction. Do you realize that we serve a risen Savior who was the most incredible rebel of all time? They tacked him up because he was rebellious against the society. And when he spoke his most 
harsh words. They were not to the pagan, to the lost, to the sinner. They were to the religious. And we're raising guys that look at the Bible and they say this is the way to do it. And if the church isn't doing it this way, we should say something. And I mean, I regularly hear from my boys because they're running into little problems in their church because they're speaking truth. But we began to start saying, if we took this and we just boiled all these years down into what we do, what would we have? And that's what I want to share with you this morning. These are things that I've instituted with my own family. I've got I've got a wife of almost 25 years, my wife, Shelly. And I'm going to tell you something. She's a holy hottie. I mean, I mean, my wife, I mean, just a few months ago, we were at this uh, deal and she turned around in the room and looked back at me and winked. And I just melted. She is so fine. I mean, just God has blessed me with this wife that is just crazy enough to love what I do. And she thinks that this is we're privileged to do this. And we have seven kids. My oldest is 18 and he's doing mission work this summer, all summer long. And and uh, he, we lost three babies in miscarriage. And at the end of the last one, the doctors pulled us in and the doctor had told me, you know, at the very end, when they were dealing with the last pregnancy. He told me, he goes, you better pray. I don't know if I can save your wife. And she was in surgery. And then they bring us in and tell us, you don't need to have children. You need to adopt. There's just no way that you need to to do this. One doctor looked at me. He says, if you get your wife pregnant again, you might have killed her. On the way home from that last one, I look over and she's got a smile on her face. I'm like, what are you smiling about? She goes, that's not what God said. God told us we were going to have kids. And so we did what everybody should do after medical science tells you not to have kids. We never went back to a doctor. They obviously don't know what they're talking about. All seven of our kids were born in our bedroom. Judah was born 10 pounds breech in our bedroom. Josiah, 10 pounds breech in our bedroom. We had just Judah Blade is just an amazing guy. Unbelievable motorcycle rider, skateboarder dropping into 15 foot, you know, half pipes. Unbelievable nerve. Josiah right behind him, long, crazy blonde hair, loves Jesus. He's got a, a Chinese girlfriend he's been with two years that honors God. And he is a phenomenal skater. It just blows me away the things he can do. And then Manna Gethsemane. Manna is a gorgeous little girl. She's not what daddy ordered. I pray God give me ugly daughters. I wanted them just to be, I mean, make a freight train, take a dirt road ugly, man. I mean, I told my, I told Manna one time, I said, girl, I prayed that you'd be so bucktooth that you could eat, you know, corn on the cob through a chain link fence. And she said, well, daddy, why? I go, cause I run a boy's home. And I said, I needed ugly daughters. And my wife was in the other room. She goes, Kurt, there would just be an ugly boy chasing her around. <laughs> Work with me here. Give me some hope. But man, it's just long, blonde, curls, beautiful girl. And just she has a passion for Jesus. And I mean, I'm not raising little princesses. I'm raising kids that have been they've here all their life. I'm raising you to go away. My dream is, you know, 15, 20 years from now that I can go to seven different countries and, and see my kids. If my children die on the mission field, daddy did good. Manna, the other day, we were in Alabama, and she got on the tractor, and not even 14, she turns 14 next month, she mowed about 15 acres that day, and girl, that girl can run a tractor. And I mean, that's what we're trying to raise are radicals. And then after her is my crazy when I was telling you about Micaiah. He's off the chain. And then 
my next daughter, who also beautiful thing, she's tiny and she's misnamed. Her name is Selah. And there's nothing quiet and peaceful about her. She is a loud, noisy, very, I'm going to be heard kind of a little chick. And then after her is my little brainiac, Silas Strider. And then my little caboose, Hosea Cully. Cully is Kurt, Shelley. You know, you run out of names at seven. Isn't it? Uh, but, you know, they, they're just an amazing group. But taking my children, my family, my kids, and 2,200 kids that had been damaged, what did we learn? And it all began to spring from a quote from a dear friend of mine, Dr. Daryl Robinson, a phenomenal man of God. And and he once said to me, he says, Kurt, we all want the blessings of obedience without obeying. We do, every one of us. We would like to have all the blessings of God that he gives when you obey, but we really don't want to obey. We would rather just get the stuff. And so what do you do when you're raising kids and you know that? And, and so we boiled this all down and we're going to, in, in October, we're really going to unpack this much more. But the fact is, what do we owe our kids? And so we found out that there's really five things. And what we did is we took the Texas law code, Texas law, and we opened up that massive tome and we broke it down and said, what is the minimum? What can you do for your kids so small, so minimum that you are just almost going to get arrested for abandonment or, you know, uh, neglect, but just the bare minimum. And the reason is, is that we found out that so many kids today are doing the bare minimum in the home. They lie to their parents. They steal from their parents. They're disobedient. They're arrogant. They're sarcastic. They're disrespectful. And we're creating this generation of entitled kids that think they've got something coming. That the world owes them something. And they're totally disillusioned when they get out there in the real world and they finish college and somebody's not standing right there when they're taking off the cap and gown, offering them, offering them a CEO position. And, you know, a couple of hundred grand a year in a BMW. You mean I have to work for it? It shatters them. Many years ago, when boys came into youth reach, we had this little thing that we would tell them during our intake. And it came from a bumper sticker I saw one time, and it says, you are special and unique, just like everybody else. Which is true. I mean, there are six billion of you people. I mean, it's in the in God's eyes, we have infinite value. But in the world's eyes, man, I look at these boys and go, you know what? A tiny, minuscule number of people cared when you showed up. Maybe mom and dad, maybe an aunt and uncle or two, a grandparent or two, maybe even all four grandparents. You might even have a sibling. But it wasn't even one percent of one percent of the planet that cared. You're just another one showing up to soil a diaper, suck up oxygen you don't deserve and take up space. Nobody cares. And the truth is, is the world is going to give you an 18, maybe 22 year head start while you get educated. And then you're going to be ruthlessly evaluated. And if you have a trade, a skill, if you have an education, the world will exploit you for what you can give them. And they will trade that exploitation for cash, the minimum they can get away with. And if you don't have a skill, a trade, an education, there are thousands 
thousands of intersections in America waiting for a guy with a will work for food sign. And I tell the boys, you are sitting between two steel rails of the railroad track in a lawn chair sunning yourself and the reality train's coming straight at you. That's what we used to tell them. Now, if I tell them that, they start crying, literally crying, and leave the program. Because they've been told how wonderful they are. That they can be anything they want to be. Which is a lie parents tell kids. Kids, you can't be everything you want to be. Look at me. I wanted to be in the NBA. There was a couple of problems. I can't play basketball. And I happen to be short. I mean, we, we tell kids these unrealistic things and we build them up and tell them, oh, you're so sweet. You're so well. No, they're not. Children are born barbarians. I mean, there's this angry horde in my house that runs through runs like locusts. Go through the refrigerator. Locusts have cleaned it out. And jobs is, the job of a parent is to civilize that Adamic nature that desires to be first. Psychology Today magazine years ago said that most children, their first word they learn is not mommy or daddy. It's the word mine. Mine. Selfishness. And so, if we boil it down, we said, what are the five things we owe our kids? And we put them up here. You owe your kids food, clothing, shelter, access to medical care, and access to education. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> this is when it gets fun. Food. The Texas law code says that you have to provide your kid with a balanced meal. That, when I asked the people at CPS, I said, what if you bought those bags that you get at Sam's of frozen vegetables and you just steam them? Bland, no salt, just steam it. Cauliflower, broccoli, carrots, maybe an onion. You know, wonderful. But what if you gave it to him for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And she goes, well, that'd be illegal. So that's cool. That's all you have to do. You know, the kids don't deserve, by law, pizza, sodas, all their fun foods. You don't have to do that. I'll get to reason why in a minute. And when it gets to clothing, the Bible says, I mean, the Bible, the, the law code says that you have to provide, it probably should, but it says that you should give them camel's hair. No, just, anyway, it says that you should give them you have to have two sets of weather-appropriate clothing. They don't have to be cool. They don't have to be in. They don't have to be fashionable. They don't have to be the latest label. They can be so uncool, it's unreal. A shelter. The law code says that they, you have to have screens on the windows. It doesn't even say you have to have air conditioning. The kid does not have a right to his own bedroom. It's not in the code. Hot and cold running water, free of rodents. That's about it. And then access to medical care, sure, they should have access to that. And access to education means you just have to give them access. You don't have to make sure that they don't turn out to be morons. You don't have to do their homework for them. If you're doing that, parent, quit doing it. Man, if a kid gets an F, that is what teaches them life. You got an F because... You were a moron. You didn't do your work. It's not the parent's job to do it for you. These parents that stay up and help kids with their projects. What's the point in that? 
I had my son one time. He was doing this project, and he's homeschooled. And he goes, Dad, this project's terrible. I go, yeah, it is. You should do a better job because you're going to help me. I go, yeah. Well, then it would look like I did it. Right now it looks like you did it. I mean, that's just the way it should be. The reality check. It's coming. And so what we realized is that we kept getting these calls from parents, and they're freaking out over Junior, who's acting like an animal. And I would ask the parents, well, tell me about their bedroom. And they would go into all the things that their kid had in their room. And I'm like, why? See, we want the blessings of obedience without obeying, but it is wrong for a parent to bless disobedience. And when I come back in October, one of the things I'm going to be teaching is the seven critical precepts that I believe wise parents should always communicate to their children. I'm going to go ahead and give you the first one right now. And the first critical precept that a wise parent instills deep into the heart of their kid is that my love for you is unconditional. My blessings are absolutely conditional. Every one of them. You see, my boys know that to disobey dad means all the things they're blessed with will evaporate like that. I started this pretty early on when I kicked Judah out of the house. At the age of four. <laughs> if you have a four-year-old, I recommend you do this tonight. <laughs> Judah was four, and one day he, I called him in and I said, Hey, buddy, I need you to go brush your teeth. And he's standing there just cute as he could be. And, you know, he had his little mullet haircut at the time. He's so embarrassed about that now. I think it's cool. I love to show those pictures to people. Look at this. Ah, you know. But he had on these flannel footy pajamas, and I said, you need to go brush your teeth. And he looks at me real sweet, and he goes, no. And I go, what did you just say? No. I said, I'm telling you to go brush your teeth, and you don't say no to Daddy. No. I said, okay, here we go, son. This is, this is, this is important. You living in my home is contingent upon you saying yes to me when I tell you to do something. You will never be allowed in my home to say no to me. Go brush your teeth. No. I picked him up. I didn't scream. Yelling parents are weak parents. I pick him up. And God had conspired with me. It was like 40 degrees and pouring down rain. Oh, God. And I mean, it's just hitting the door, coming under the porch and hitting the door. And I open the door and I put him out in the rain. His eyes are like this. And I close the door, turn the deadbolt. And I walk back in the living room. My wife's sitting in the living room. She goes, well, how long are you going to leave him out there? I said, well, it's a scientific experiment to see how long it takes cold rain to completely saturate flannel footy pajamas. And I can hear him banging the door, so I turn the TV up. And we're watching TV, and about 20 minutes goes by. And I finally realize it's probably there now. So I can still hear him knocking. And I went to the door, and I got down. And I turned the lock and I opened it just a little bit. And I said, what do you want, buddy? And he goes, I want to brush my teeth. Because <laughs> he, even as a four-year-old, he knew that it was not going to work to say, I want to come inside. Because coming inside was not going to happen. You have to obey. And we act like children are these fragile little things that oh, will hurt their self-esteem. 
my biggest fight with the state of Texas over our licensing in our homes is their belief that children are born with self-esteem. My boys come in to youth reach, they can't tell the difference between a flathead and a Phillips screwdriver, but they can break down a 9mm pistol. They can't fix anything, don't know how to check the oil in a car, but they can hotwire it. They have no self-esteem. They're arrogant and out of control. Self-esteem is built by the labor of your hand, knowing who you are, having a, a, a sense of honor and character. And that doesn't happen without someone instilling that into kids. And then I took Judah that day and I took those hot, uh, those cold flannel pajamas off of him. And he walked in there in his underwear, still shivering, and he brushed his teeth. And then I came up behind him with a blanket and I wrapped it around him and I held him and I sat on my chair and I held him and he nuzzled up to my neck and he fell asleep in daddy's arms. He's 18 years old. He's never rolled his eyes, procrastinated, huffed, puffed, sighed heavy or said no to daddy since. He's an amazing young man of character and honor. I trust him with my life. He's going now from boyhood to manhood and going from being my son to being my dear friend. And this is the way we're raising our kids, not to be entrapped by the lies of the American dream, which is so horrific that Christian parents are putting that on kids. But they're being raised to go away and be people of impact. I mean, the fact is, there's a sense in our country, you know, that kids have to be protected from parents that, you know, are fundamentalist Christians because the fact is, though, we should know how to do it. And I know at Youth Reach, we're raising kids like our grandparents and great-grandparents did, where you have to earn everything. Privileges are earned. But you know what? When you've got a kid that is out of control, and this mother was kind of my test subject. She called me several years ago, and she said, my son is bigger than me. He's stealing from me. He pushed me against the refrigerator the other day. He takes things from me. He cusses me. I mean, she's got a barbarian living in her home. And so we worked out the whole plan. And she actually got excited about it. So the boy goes to school the next day. When he comes home, he walks in his room and starts screaming because there's nothing in his room but a blanket and a pillow. She gave him the blanket and pillow because she was compassionate. She didn't have to give it to him. It's not on the list. He freaked out. But I told her, I said, nothing in his room. Take it all. I said, and when he opens his closet, hanging on a metal hanger needs to be another set of uncool clothes. And that's all he gets. She had rented a little storage building and moved everything out. In the refrigerator was gone all the food he liked and was the food he couldn't stand. I said, well, I told her a couple of days before, I said, what does he really not like? She goes, he hates tuna fish. I go, oh, get you a lot of it. I said, and put it on bread, put it on tortillas, you know, make it, you know, put it in pancakes if you want to. Just make him, you know, tuna fish is a great, that's healthy. That'll go right in with it. She fed him everything he hated. But the first thing he did when he came home is he called the police on her. She called me. She goes, he just called the police. I said, oh, this is going to be good. Call me back. She called me back a little while later and she was so excited. She goes, well, he told the cop that I'd stolen all of his stuff. And then I told him what he'd been doing and what I'd done. And he leaned over him and high-fived me. <laughs> and then he 
And then the cop took him outside and said, son, if I have to come back here, I'm going to turn you over my knee and spank you myself. And the cop left. So we rejoiced. And then she calls me later that night. She goes, he's run away. I go, good. That's part of the plan. I said, now, listen, very few people are going to feed teenage boys very long. They eat a lot. Let me tell you something. I've looked at it. I run programs full of teenage boys. The next one I open is going to be for old folks. You give them a can of insure, roll them up against the window, you're done. But man, these guys are just eat, 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 eat. They'll sit at breakfast going, uh, what's for lunch? You know, they can't even eat the one that, I mean, and so I said, he'll, he'll be back. And when he comes back, he's going to bargain with you. And so he's gone almost three days, which was three days. She said, we're unbelievably peaceful in my home. I go, yeah, ain't great. Change the locks maybe, you know, but he comes back and he tells her, he goes, Mom, uh, I'll come back if you give me back all this. <laughs> she just starts laughing. She comes and goes, you believe he was bargaining. I go, yeah, they're, they're stupid. They're just not that bright. I said, but the thing is, don't give him anything. And man, he was moody and angry. And after a couple of weeks, it's yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. He's being respectful. He's setting the table. He played all the con games. He tried to cry. Man, when boys cry in front of me, I'm like, son, suck it up. I ain't your mama. Those tears, I couldn't care less. You're a manipulating little rascal. Stop it. I mean, and these boys will turn it on, play the emotion game, whatever. But then he starts honoring his mother. One day he was playing basketball. She went out and caught the basketball, locked it in her trunk, said, that's my ball. You can't play with my basketball. He came and asked her, said, I want to go to the mall. We take me to the mall? She said, why would I do that? You're a mean kid. And you lie to me and you steal from me. Why would I do that for you? But right now, several years later, he's at University of Texas. I keep up with him. And he thinks his mother is nine foot tall, invisible, and bulletproof. He talks about her in awe. He respects and honors that four foot, 11 inch mama of his. I mean, what do we give our kids? I mean, think about this. Uh, we put just a few suggestions up here, but uh, the cell phones. What do we owe our kids? Do we owe them a cell phone? Did You older folks, did you have a cell phone when you were 13? They go, but he has to stay in touch. No, they don't. We weren't in touch. My parents said, come in when the streetlights came on. That was our signal. That was our cell phone. But we give them cell phones, iPods, video games, computers, I asked this moon mom, I said, tell me about your son's room. She goes, what? I go, tell me about his room. I said, does he have a TV? Oh, yeah, it's plasma. I said, does he have a DVD player? Yeah, he's got Blu-ray. I said, great, that's wonderful. He's got internet? Yeah, computer? Yeah. You got a cell phone? Yeah. She just goes, unless, I said, can you explain to me why he has all that when he treats you like dirt? And it just seemed like to hit her. She's like, I have no idea. We bless disobedience and parents to communicate to your kids my love is unconditional but everything from my hand is conditional i will love you regardless but i will bless you as you honor me and honor god and i tell you it's it's an amazing thing to watch when you start seeing kids react to a parent that they realize carries the big stick if there's anything I want to do is to travel around this country and shake parents till their teeth rattle and say, be the parent. Don't be their friend. I, I, I tell my kids all the time, I'm not your friend. I am much better than that. Do not 
diminish me to the level of your friendships. I'm not your friend. I am so much more. Friends will come and go. I'm going to be there for you. But man, for parents to step in and to say, I'm going to raise you to be a world changer. To affect around you. I mean, you're never really going to know how good of a parent you are until you're a grandparent. And you look and see how your kids are raising kids. That's when it's really going to hit us all. But it's an opportunity to affect kids and to to launch them in a whole different way. Right now, folks, we're creating a generation of monsters. When I see what happened in Aurora, Colorado... Several years ago, I I did a study. If you go in my office, I've got an entire two shelves of books. And it's all on mass murderers and serial killers. And there's one consistent theme. Horribly dysfunctional parenting. And what would take place is things that would create this consuming, angry, hateful, brooding time bomb. In our language we use at Youth Reach, we call these kids cannon packers. They're just stuffing it down and one day it's going to go off. I am surprised looking at the trends in this world that we're not hearing about things like an aurora every day. I think we're going to get there in the next 10 years to where kids walking into a mall or a movie theater or into their school with weapons is going to be much more common but we as the church have the answer raising kids that are salt and light raising kids that are radical not to be good church members not to toe the line of the religious establishment in western christianity but to be willing to go into all the world and make disciples i hope my kids die in a foreign country penniless with a long, long list of lives eternally impacted. If they go and go to college and make good money and buy a big house and buy a nice car and all that, it'll grieve my heart. That's not what we had them for. We had them to be radicals. Let's pray. Father, as we Leave here today, we pray, God, that you would impact us with your presence, with your word. God, there's a heaviness, Lord, in our hearts when we think of the the state of our children and the odds that are stacked up against our kids. Father, empower us as parents, as grandparents, as expective parents, as one day to be parents, to be people that take on the responsibility of raising kids and realize the eternal nature of it. Father, equip us and equip Rock Point to be a church that launches out kids that will one day be amazing parents. And help us, Father, to change our society and our world. We pray all these things, Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.